ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and show us what you would want us to see. And we thank you for all that you've done for us and your love for us and, and the fact that you've given us your word so we can learn about you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be starting at verse 30. But to get us back in the context, he has been talking about those who will willfully sin against God and that God is going to bring uh, judgment upon them. He talked about the, those who disobeyed the law of Moses were, were executed. And so we're taking that thought as we move into chapter, uh, verse 30. Verse 30 says, For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of, of affliction, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions to them that were so used. So we're going to stop there for just a moment because I want to look at what he's saying here. First off, he says, for we know him that says, vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense. This is from Deuteronomy uh, 32, 35. And this is something that we always want to remember. Vengeance is God's. It is not for us to go jumping around trying to figure out, oh, how is this person going to pay for what they've done? Uh, they've got to you know, pay. And this is something that our entire country has been set up on. We are not to go out as vigilantes. We're not to go out as, as the enforcers. That's the government's job. The government is God's arm of punishment. We, as Christians especially, we're called to love people. And the government's job is to punish for God's sake. And he says, vengeance belongs to God. And then he says, even further, he says, the Lord shall judge his people. Now, this is something that is very interesting for us is that, especially in our days of the idea of grace overwhelming everything, God brings discipline on his children. It is not a loving act to let people get away with their, their lifestyle. And this is what, you know, for our kids, I had a you know, talk at the prison with one of my inmates because I had made a comment on, you know, that my kids had to do things. And he goes, well, you can't make things. And I go, well, I'm their father and I'm going to give them boundaries. I understand that I can't make them. And he goes, well, it's not loving. I go, no, your idea of love to do anything is not love. God's attitude toward us because he loves us. When we're doing something that will lead into trouble in the future, he says he will try to stop us. He'll put roadblocks in our way. He'll put discipline in our, in our path. And this is the, the news that God gives us is that he goes, I will bring judgment on my people. And God is the one that brings vengeance. Now, part of what happens for us, though, a lot of times we will look at the sowing and reaping. God has put a law in place in this world that we will reap what we sow. 
And a lot of times people think, well, I'm under judgment, I'm under attack by God. And what they're really having is the reaping of what they have sown. They have sown the bad seeds and there are consequences for those bad seeds. And that's not judgment. Judgment is when God steps into his children and says, you're headed, headed in the wrong, uh, wrong direction. We're going to take you back behind the woodshed and, and give you a little bit of a you know, backside attention. <laughs> and, you know, and he says, I want your attention. I want you to know you're headed in the wrong direction. And it's his children that he disciplines, not the world. The world gets consequences for their actions, but he doesn't discipline those that aren't his children. That would be like us going out and trying to discipline somebody else's children. It doesn't go over well. It has never gone over well. All right. Uh, and it definitely doesn't go over well in today's world uh, to discipline somebody else's children. And God says he will discipline his children. He judges. But there is a consequence. If you hurt God's children, then God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to recompense that. I will bring discipline to that for the direction. And it's the same thing for all of us. If somebody hurt our children or hurt your spouse, it gets your dander up. You're like, I want to get back at this person for harming my children, my, my family, whatever it might be. And there is a place that that is a allowable thing for God. Jesus changed it to us. He said, love your enemies, be kind to those who mistreat you. But here we have this whole process that says, vengeance belongs to God. We need to be able to learn to let him take care of things. And, you know? Right, his judgment on his, his children would be, I'm, I'm equating it with judgment, uh, because, or with discipline, because that's more of what he does to us. Right, we're headed in the wrong way, he makes the judgment we're headed in the wrong way, and then he puts discipline in our life, because judgment generally means to us that we get <laughs> separated from him, and that once we're on with him, we're not going to be separated from him. So he brings that. He judges our situation and deals us with punishment to try to bend us back to his direction. So is someone suggesting that the seal of the Holy Spirit allows him to give us judgment in our current time? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's why I don't really like the word judgment here, because judgment is really what's coming in the future. And we don't face that as his children. Uh, we will, though, face the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ, where all of our works will be cast into the flame, the fire, the burning furnace, and whatever comes out is what we're rewarded with. So we do face a a judgment, but it won't be the white throne judgment. Our judgment is not whether we go to heaven or hell. It is what do we enter heaven with, as opposed to the 
lost who go to the white throne judgment and anybody going to the white throne judgment is guilty because we have stood our, we've had our judgment of our works at the Bema seat and God will judge. He will judge our works. What did we allow him to do and what did we do? And then that will judge how we enter into heaven with what, what rewards we enter into heaven with. Recompense. Yeah. yeah. Recompense. He'll give. He'll give us what we're. What we uh, and or again following in through discipline. Dis- the idea of discipline. And then he goes on to say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a very interesting idea that God is bringing out on here. That it is his hands that we will fall into and that it is a thing that we don't really want to have happen because God's going to judge his people. All right. Uh, And it is a fearful or a inspiring of awe. (laughs) Okay. It's not necessarily, oh, I'm afraid because we're still talking about his people. All right. It is something that is kind of a forbiddable thing. It's like, okay, I don't want to fall into, fall into his hands in this particular instance. Now, we know that his hands are under us anyway. And the good news for us is if we sin and we fail, he is sitting there with his hands under us to catch us. And I think this is the beautiful thing about God is his grace is there an awe-inspiring idea that God is there to catch us even when we fail. Now, we do know that this was a great sermon in the past. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, and it was broken up and added, added to, but I want to look at this in a different way. It's awe-inspiring to fall into the hands of the living God, to fall into one's power. We are supposed to be in his hands anyway. And when we confess our sins, we become one with Christ. We become in God is holding us by in his hand. It is a wonderful thing for us. But it is something that is, I want to say this, one of the definitions for this word is that it is inspiring. It, it inspires fear because it's a fearful thing to realize that God is there it's awe, an awesome thought that God is there to catch us when we fall. And, you know, my, my question is, most people have this picture of God just waiting in heaven for his children to, to mess up so he can hit us over the head. You know, throw fireballs at us, whatever you might have, you know. I, I've kind of said this, I kind of think of, you know, most people have this idea that God's playing whack-a-mole with his, with his children. We dare to stick our heads out through the hole and he hammers us. That is not God. God loves us so much. He's like, he, it would be more like he's looking for us to stick our head out, out, of the, out of the hole so he could grab us and pull us out of the hole and say, get up here where you belong. You know, quit, quit hiding. You know, and we need to be able to understand that God wants us to trust him. 
He's not up there looking for reasons to, to knock us down and to trip us up or to, you know, whatever term you want to use. You know, the old, the old vision of the, you know, the gods in, in the Greek time of throwing thunderbolts at, their, at all the people, you know, that is not God. He loves us and he's saying, come on out, you know, come on, just, just come into my hands and let me take you where you're supposed to be. Trust me. You know, the idea, again, of a parent when we take our child's hand and say, come on and follow me, I'm going to take you where I want you to go. Or even if it's not our child, you know, sometimes you know, we're trying to help a child. And the first step is to get them to take our hand just so they, they're showing that they trust. That is what God is saying. I've got my hands out for you. Will you just take my hand and trust me? That's the first step in really truly following God is to just trust him. That's what faith is all about. Putting my trust in God. Now, the problem for us in our day, Satan is doing a wonderful job destroying families. Why is he so much out to destroy families? Because if he can destroy the family, he destroys the picture of God as the father. You know, you tell some people God wants to be your father and they're going, oh no, I don't want a father. I know what fathers do. You know, father's abusive. They're always mean. The father is, you know, sexually abusive, whatever it may be. All these things that Satan has done to destroy families has destroyed the picture of God being the perfect father. The one that loves his children with nothing but good for them. He's destroyed the picture of marriage because what is marriage is the picture of Jesus and his church. And Satan is working to destroy marriage and the picture of marriage. He wants so much to say, don't trust. Don't put your trust in God because, you know, hey, you know what fathers are like. You know what, you know that no marriages are working these days. And it's sad when you talk to so many of these young people that do not know what a father or even a mother is supposed to be. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day and I've said it in this church many times. How many of our young children are being raised by quote unquote parents that don't know what it means to be a parent because they're second, third, fourth, fifth generation away from having been trained to, by a parent? Now, this has been my problem is my kids were growing up I'm going God help them find somebody that is actually going to know what it means to be in a marriage to be a parent because so many of them don't it's our job in the church now to reach out to these young people that don't have any idea what it means to be a parent bring them into the word of God and also be examples to them of how to raise their children how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a mother or a father, so that we can be able to bring back God's way of thinking to them. Because God is saying, I want you to put my trust, your trust in me. And it is hard for some people to put their trust in somebody because they have been so abused by the world. And all they're going is, no, nope. <laughs> every time I put my trust into anybody, it's not been good. And that makes people very gun shy of going to God and saying, God, I'm going to trust you completely. Because everything about their life has been, no, you can't trust anybody. 
and you know to separate God from people is difficult in some people's minds but here it says God is wanting there he's a living God and I love that part he's the living God and this is a statement made and it doesn't mean as much to us as it did to the ones that were stated on there but Paul is talking even though he's talking to the Hebrews they're in a day and age where there are idols everywhere even in Israel they had idols all around Jerusalem and everything from the pagans that lived there, the, the Gentiles that lived there, and the Jews tended to worship idols as well. And all through the scriptures we're going, why would you worship a hunk of wood with eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, mouths that can't speak, hands that can't do anything when you have the living God or a hunk of gold or a hunk of rock, whatever, whatever their idol was made out of. And here he's saying the living God. And, you know, one of the things that we have today is, you know, we in America tend to have the idea that we don't have idols. Well, unfortunately, an idol is anything that is placed equal to or above God. And for most Americans, we have all kinds of idols. We have sports for many people that become their idol. They would give up anything for their sports including coming to church and reading their Bible and going. People sometimes turn their hobbies into gods. Sometimes they turn their families into gods. I will do anything because my family needs it. In America, we have a big, big idol in most households called a big, big, big screen television or something in there that everything faces that and everything goes. You come home, you sit down in front of your idol and you sit there all night. And forget about God, forget about everything for hours we have idols and we have to be very careful no we don't have statues that look like gods or anything in in most of our homes but you know even that is starting to come back you know I have seen so many Buddhas all over the place I've seen many Krishnas around about uh, we are seeing these idols coming back to, with, you know, and we're seeing the end days and Satan raise, rising up and seeing all of the things that have already happened coming back. And it's not going to surprise me one day to see idols everywhere. Why? The Antichrist is going to have people bowing down to his image. Bef before, during the tribulation period, they have to be conditioned to bow before idols again. And it won't be long before we're going to start seeing this kind of stuff going on. You know, don't be surprised when it happens. The conditioning has to start. Why are we going through all the stuff we're going right now with the government trying to take more and more authority and more and more control of our lives? It's conditioning us for the Antichrist coming. We're not necessarily us, we're, we won't be here, but conditioning the world for the Antichrist saying, well, you can't do this, you can't, you can't do this, you, can't, you can do this, you can't do this. It's conditioning people for what's coming. So we need to just be aware, you know, read the book of Revelation, read the book of Daniel and see what's coming. Know what's coming and then when you look around and say, wow, things are being laid down. I think we are closer to the end days than we think we are. Uh, you know, it could be any time now for the rapture to come and the beginning of trials and tribulations to come. 
And I know this has been said for a long time, but I look at the book of, book of Revelation and, and, and the end times and I'm going, God, how much longer do we have before all of this stuff comes true? Because the foundations are all being laid down in a way that all through history has never happened before for all of the stuff to come together at one point. And so it's going to be an interesting time as we look here. Verse 23. But call to remembrance the former days in which you were illuminated and endured a great fight of afflictions. Here's Paul calling to these Hebrew believers saying, you want to return to the law? Why? Remember when, you, when your eyes were opened and the light was turned on. What was it like? Paul's biggest problem when he was preaching was he would come into town and he'd tell everybody that they're saved by grace. Not that the law was worthless, but that they were saved by grace. And then he would have the Judaizers come in right behind him, usually right after he left so he couldn't defend what's going on, saying basically, oh, Paul's message of grace was really good, except you have to do all these laws to really please God. And here's Paul saying, remember the message. Remember the grace message. Remember that for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he keeps going on. And here he's saying, remember what you first saw. And this is something for even as for us as Christians, because it is so easy for us to forget that grace is all, the, all that really matters. Because if you've been a Christian long enough, you start thinking, well, you know, if I just do enough good, God will be really happy with me. You know, and we tend to slip into that so easily. We know in one side of our mind that it is not true. But, you know, we get into, well, God, you know, hey, I read my Bible every day, God. You, you, that, should, that should be good for something. I come to church, you know, when the doors are open, I'm there at church. I'm, I'm studying God, you know, I'm sharing the gospel with people. And we start thinking a little higher of ourselves instead of falling into grace. And this is the beauty of it. Now, if you stay in grace, thank God, I'm happy. You know, I try to stay in grace, but, you know, even I fall into this every once in a while. You know, and maybe we take it the other direction. God, I'm not doing all the things that I should be doing or the things I think I should be doing. God, I haven't read my Bible in such a long time. I haven't gone to church. I haven't, haven't thought about you for a day or two. Oh, woe was me. Something's wrong. You know, God, how can I be saved? Because I am not living up to the way that, you're, that you want me to live up, live to. Now, am I saying we go out and not do everything? No. But remember that it's all by grace. That God is not more pleased with me because I sit down and, and I'm at church every day. I'm reading my Bible for an hour or two a day. I'm praying for an hour or two a day. You know, I am so busy with God that anytime I'm not at work or, or sleep, I'm spending it with God. That doesn't impress him any more than if I didn't do all that stuff. Now, the consequences are better. If I'm staying in God's word and all of that, it's better for me because there are better consequences. But it doesn't impress God any better that, that he says, oh, oh that, that child is just so wonderful. Look at that child over there doing all those things for me. You know, that is not what he's... And he's not saying anything about it, you know, but there are good consequences for obedience to God. I mean, that's why we want to do things because the reaping and sowing is good. 
But it's not God looking down, oh man, look at that precious child. They're, they're just so perfect. You know, he's just looking down, what does he see when he looks at us anyway? If we are his children, he sees Jesus' righteousness on us, so he, he looks down at all his children, no matter what we're doing, and says, there's my perfect child. <laughs> That's my perfect child. Uh, uh, God, don't you realize? No, no, I see the righteousness of Christ. I don't see all the stuff that you're seeing. Uh, and so we want to keep this in mind. He says, remember after we, the former days after which you were illuminated, you were, the light was brought into your life, and you endured a great flight, a fight of afflictions. Now, this is something that is very hard for us because what's the first thing most people think about when they have hard times? What have I done wrong? Why isn't God, God doing anything for me? And then Paul's saying, remember what you have endured. God brings trials into our lives basically to push us into his arms. Because when we have those hard times, we can sit there and try to fight on our own and be swept downstream, who knows how far before we finally say, I give up and help me. Or we go right to God's arms and say, God, I need your help because I can't get through this trial. Some of us are more stubborn than others. And you all know, I've shared with you, I am a stubborn person. I, I am a manager. I like to make my own plans. I like to get out of everything. And God and I have had many battles over the years <laughs> where I'm going to do things my way and be swept downstream and finally go, uh, God, you know, I'm about 12 miles from where I'm supposed to be. Would you please rescue me? And this is to remember... And then I love this, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. All right, gazing stock. If you're not used to this word, it's an old English word. It means to bring on stage or to expose to contempt. You know, God puts us on the stage when we're following away from him to be a gazing stock. He puts us on the stage, basically not for the good show, but to be made fun of. And this is what he's saying, to be taunted by reproaches and afflictions. Have you ever had a place where you thought, God, uh, my testimony is being blown out of the water because of all the reproaches coming my way, all the afflictions. <laughs> I've become a gazing stock. You know, God, I don't know what I've done necessarily to, to need all of this. And part of it is to humble us because it is easy. I had an individual one time that something happened to her and she just exploded because she goes, this is, this is destroying my testimony. And God had to get hold of her and say, it's not your testimony anyway. It's me who's the one that's going to be exalted or lifted up. Just relax. And we need to get to this place where oftentimes when we mess up, God uses it anyway because that's his promise. All things work together for good. You know, most of the world does not want to see perfect Christians. They say they do. But what happens if they see a perfect Christian? They go, I can't be like that person. 
And it actually will drive them further away from Christ when we try to pretend to be perfect people. They actually, when, we, when they see us fail, they will first think that, well, we're just being hypocrites because we're not perfect. But when we repent to God and maybe take one other step, tell them we're sorry for, the, for what, we, what we did to them, you know, is very important. Apologizing to our children for something is something that is very important to the kids to see that mom and dad are not above us. They're just like us. They're human. The world wants to see that we as Christians are human, that we fail. You know, I have actually had people when I'm witnessing to, well, it's easy for you to be good. You're, you're perfect. I'm going, you don't even know. <laughs> and I'll even tell them, here's a few things where I'm not perfect at. Now, my imperfections are a little different from their imperfections, and I understand that. Because they're saying, well, you're not in drugs, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. But when we don't ever want to feel like we're better than anybody else to begin with. And so here we are looking at this. He says, you're a gazing stock. You're, you're put on stage for reproaches. And while you became companions of them that were so used and being put on the same stage. These people are ones that are wanting to go back. And this is what he's saying. You went through all the hardships of becoming a Christian, being put under the affliction, under the trials, and now you want to go back to what you used to come to. This is something that is so interesting that he's saying, don't go back. And he's begging them, don't go back into the sacrificial system. Don't go back to putting yourself under the law. It is easy because why is it easy to go under the law? The law is a set of rules and we like rules to, to one side because we know rules tell us what to do and not do. Now we don't like following rules usually but we like the idea that there are rules. <laughs> and even in Christian Christianity oftentimes we'll try to put ourselves under rules. You know, this is the way you have to wear your hair. This is the clothes you have to wear. This is, you know, don't do this. Don't, you know, do these. Don't do this. And it doesn't take long for you to figure out what the people in that particular church, you know, want you to do if, there, if there's rules being followed in that church. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. Wear the right clothes. Say the right things. Don't do this. Do these. Uh, you know, in the 60s, don't go to the movies, don't play cards, you know, women don't, you know, don't wear pants, men keep your hair short, you know, the long list of things that you did if you wanted to be spiritual. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not really sure because I haven't really looked at anything, but I'm sure there's still churches out there that still have certain rules. You know, even, even ones that don't follow those rules will have their rules that say, this is what you are. If you want to be a spiritual person, this is what you do. And we need to be very careful that we don't fall into that kind of mentality ourselves, either for us or in judging others, not meeting our standards. Our job is not to judge them. Our job is to just give the gospel to people and let the gospel speak and let the gospel run. And Paul continues in verse 34, you had compassion on me in my bonds 
and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence with has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who call draw back into perdition, but of them that believe into the saving of the soul. So here he says, you had compassion for me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So here he's saying, you had, when I was in prison, and this is Paul, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, when I was in prison, you had compassion on me. And he says, the spoiling of your goods, in other words, they gave of their goods to him. And to the point of, in, a, in at least one city, he says, you have given me things that you could not even afford to give me. And here he's saying, because you knew that in heaven there was a better and enduring substance. Our reward is in heaven. And the more we realize that, the more generous we will be, the more caring we will be, the more helpful we will be in this lifetime, even if it might hurt us. And, you know, I have heard it said, and I really believe it, that you can't outgive God. If you try to give, outgive God, God will just pour open heaven for you back in return. And so here he's saying, you are helping me so much. And because you knew that your true reward was in heaven. And I love this idea. You know, there, there are people that go, well, that person's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Well, it is not a true statement because the more we're concerned about heaven and bringing people into heaven, the more we're going to help people in this world. Christianity is responsible for hospitals. It's responsible for orphanages. It's responsible for the help of the poor. Why? Because in the Roman day especially, because this is where our history started, when was, you know, they didn't care about the orphans. And even where Christianity has not held sway in this world, when people did, where their parents died or there were just too many kids, they dumped them in the street and nobody took care of them. And if the kid was strong enough, smart enough to survive, they survived. If not, they died and nobody cared. You know, we developed hospitals. And again, in the world where Christianity has not held sway, it's, well, if you are rich enough to be able to buy your own physician, you can get taken care of. If not, eh, you're not, you're, you're, you don't deserve to live. The scary thing is we're starting to get, even in America, we're slipping away from our godly roots to where kids aren't important anymore, the, the sick aren't important anymore. And we just don't care because it was Christianity looking at people saying they are created in the image of God and are important that brought the caring around. And it's scary to me as I look around and I see, you know, uh, 
we hear the term all the time in Christian circles, we're in a post-modern or a post-Christian age. Well, I look at it the opposite way. We are reverting back to a pre-Christian world where everything is so worldly. We're going full circle from where we were are, nothing new under the sun. We're going back to where Christianity is not holding sway and things are getting bad. And we need to be able to understand that this is a big problem. Verse 35 says, cast not away therefore your confidence. You know, the whole idea of what do we put our trust in? Cast not away your confidence. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the finished work of Christ that says, you are perfect, the sin debt is paid. And now we have to decide to put on the righteousness of Christ by accepting that sacrifice. That is our confidence. My confidence is not in what I can do or not do for God. My confidence is not how much better I am than anybody else. My confidence is Jesus Christ and his work that he has done and his strength as he crucifies my flesh and now I get to live through him. And this is the beauty of it. The more I let him crucify me, the more of him that comes out. And then everything I do that is him is what I will be rewarded for at the Bema seat when he cast in all the works it says okay here are the good works here's the things you let me do through you and the rest of the things that my good works which are filthy rags will burn up and it's all what do I let God do I surrender you know, and I've said this so many times that people go well how do you surrender it's easy you surrender you know, I don't know how to, the, the thing I have learned over the years, because I have I've fought hard on how do I surrender. And when I finally surrendered, I was like kicking myself all over the place and going, it was so easy. You know, and my example is if the police were outside our door with bullhorn saying, come out with your hands up, we have a choice. We stay in here and say, I'm not surrendering, I'm not coming out, or I go out with my hands up. If I don't go out with my hands up, I'm probably going to have tear gas coming in so that eventually I will come out anyway. And God is saying, I just want you to surrender. And if we don't surrender, he starts lobbing in the tear gas and everything else and saying, well, are you ready to come out yet? I just want you to surrender to me. You know, and if we don't surrender, he just keeps making life more and more difficult until we finally decide, well, you know what? I think I'll just surrender. I will leave the door with my hands up and say, I give up. And that's all he's asking us to do. And believe me, when I say all you do is surrender, I know how hard it is to surrender in the middle of the, middle of the trial. When you're still sitting there trying to figure out how to get it done. <laughs> How am I going to figure this out? How am I going to accomplish? And then God is saying, would you just surrender already? Let me crucify that area of your life and let me live out through you. When you do it, it's so much easier. When you finally just say, God, I give up and let him do it, you're going, wow, 
I could have done this how long ago? You know, minutes, hours, years, <laughs> decades. <laughs> you know, uh, and he says, just don't cast off your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, that has great uh, wages paid. That's what recompense means, the wages paid. We hold on to the confidence of the grace and the finished work of God, and there is a wage paid for that statement to come through. And it says, oops, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Oh, the word patience. Most of us don't like patience. Uh, but, you know, when we have gone, done God's will, he doesn't instantly give us the reward, usually. It takes time. And he says, it will come, and you will receive what is promised. We have patience. Example I like to use for us in, in this human life is a farmer at the beginning of the, of the growing season, plows his field, dumps fertilizer into his field, dumps seeds into his field, and he looks at it and says, where, where is my crop? Now, we would laugh and say, why would he be looking for a crop after he just planted the seed? But how many times do we look for the crop as soon as we put the seed into the ground? God, uh, where's my reward? God, I've done everything you've told me to do. Where is my reward? It's supposed to be here yesterday. You know, even though I dropped it in today, the reward was supposed to have been here yesterday. In our mind, we need to learn patience. Our reward may not happen until we get to heaven. How many rewards do we have in heaven? I don't know. You know, when we give money to missionaries... When we share the gospel and we plant seeds or we water the seed on somebody, every once in a while we get the privilege of actually harvesting you know, the seed and seeing somebody come to Christ. How many times have you said something that you might have a reward in heaven and you didn't even know about it? Maybe you don't even know that you lived something in front of somebody and they looked at you and said, no, if that's what a Christian's like, I want to be a Christian, but they weren't ready to become a Christian yet. But your life led them to make a you know, toward a decision. We don't know what rewards we're going to have until we get to heaven. And there's going to be times when we're going to get rewards and we didn't even know anything about it because people watch us. They look at you and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that has this, but I get, get it so often. Why are you always so happy or cheerful or in a good mood or something of that nature? I'm going, well, I'm not always, but you know, in general, why? God is in, in charge. I love, you know, tomorrow when I go to work, I'm going to be smiling. Everybody's going, how can you be so happy on a Monday? And I'm going to tell them the same thing I tell them every time they ask me that is because God is still in charge on Monday as he was every other day of the week. You know, my God is still in charge. Now, do I get to speak a whole lot with them mostly on that? No, but it is just a quick word to saying God is sovereign. 
God is in charge. Every once in a while, I'll get to talk more with them. I've got one person who's angry with me almost because I come in happy every Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> and, and she is only happy Friday because <laughs> it's the last day of the week. And she's going, you can't be this happy all the time. You know, what have you got to be so happy about? I've had chances to tell her what I have been happy about, but she doesn't believe it. You know, our world needs to be such as we say God is in charge and whether I have anything today or not, eventually I will. When I get to heaven, there will be rewards that I know nothing about, that I am looking forward to saying, God, what have you done? You know, what have we got rewarded for? And, you know, I've told many of you, I love the song, Thank You. Now, it starts out, I dreamed I went to heaven, you were there with me, and it talks about all these people coming up and saying, you know, I'm here because of this little thing you did, this little thing you did, this little thing you did. Most of the things that we really will be rewarded for, we have no clue what we did. Because all we were doing was serving God when it happened. And... You know, we're all looking for this big day when I can, God, when, when am I going to be uh, Peter speaking on the day, day of Pentecost and 3,000 people come to Christ? Well, for most of us, that probably will never happen. But if we live faithfully for God, there will be lives that have been touched that we know nothing about, that we don't know why or how what we've done is going to touch people. And this is the beauty of it. God says, be patient. Be patient with, for the reward. And then verse 37, I love this. Um, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming soon. Now, I love this, but people go, well, you Christians have been saying that Jesus is coming soon. And that is correct, and he's coming soon. We are closer to his soon today than we were yesterday. And if he wants to wait for another hundred years, in a hundred years we will be closer to his coming than we are today. I think we're awfully close to it, as I said earlier, because I look around at what's happening and saying, the book of Revelation is coming true. All these things are coming together at the same moment. I think we're right on the cusp of his, of his return. But even if he isn't, praise God, we're still closer today than we were. You know, if, if there's another 100 years, another 200 years, whatever it might be, we are still closer today than the, than the apostles were 2,000 years ago. And they thought he was coming in their time. Yeah. You know, because they were going through persecution. They were being killed for their faith. They were watching the, the Caesars claiming to be God. And they're going, well, we're right here too. Now, they didn't have a one-world monetary system and all that kind of stuff, but you know, we have that kind of stuff laying in place. We know how the prophets would be seen in the temple by everybody in the world because we would have a, they'll have a satellite television channel and watch these pro crazy guys at the, at the temple you know, where people can watch them all the time. We had the capability of giving gifts instantly as soon as they were to be killed People would be passing gifts all back and forth around the world in celebration. We can do that today. Most of what was in the book we used to think was 
even when I was first studying it back in the 70s and 80s, we're going, ah, this can't be real. Look at, you know, this is so far-fetched. None of this stuff can happen. Now we read it and it's like we're reading the newspaper and saying, I, I know exactly how this stuff can happen. I know exactly how they're going to track me. I know exactly how I can't buy or sell without, without the right marks. And so we go through all of this and he says, he that shall come will come and will not tarry. When it is time for Jesus to come, he will not tarry. And even Jesus says that only the Father knows the day and the hour. I can almost picture Jesus up there and saying, uh, Father, is it time to go get the bride, my bride yet? I want my bride. And the Father says, not yet. Not yet. I can picture that when, when the Father says, go get your bride, <laughs> he's going to be right there. <laughs> and as soon as the Father says, get the bride, we're gone. <laughs> and he's going to say, now all the trials can hit this, this world. All the judgment that they deserve is going to fall. And he's waiting. And then verse 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. This verse is used four, these words are used four times in the scriptures. The first one is in Habakkuk 2.4. 2, the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk 2.4. Then it's also in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and right here in Hebrews. The term, the just shall live by faith. Those that are called by God, are the only ones that are just, shall live by faith. What is faith? Putting your confidence in, in God. You know, putting full confidence in him, full trust in him. Now, is it easy to live by faith? No. <laughs> Why? Because faith has no rules. <laughs> you know, we, again, we go back to what I've said several times here. We don't like rules because we, we know we can't keep them, but we like rules because it tells us what to do. You know, just tell me what to do and I will do my best to meet those rules if I care and yet God says I want you to live by faith your trust in me just live by that trust and when we get to the next chapter we're going to see that living by faith is not easy you know, he's going to give us all kinds of pictures of people who lived by faith and were made fun of were killed, were, were looking at, staring at death because they walked by faith. And this is the hard thing for us. We look and God says, I want you to do this. God, uh, they're not going to like that if I do this. And God says, walk by faith. God, you know, if I say that what they're doing is sin, when everybody else is saying it's okay, I'm going to have a problem. And God says, walk by faith faith. One of the problems in the church today is the backing off of calling sin, sin. And saying that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There are churches all over the world, and especially in America, 
that won't call sin, sin. Because that's offensive to people. People won't like it if you say that they're, they're living together is fornication. That when, you know, that they're supposed to stay together, you know, uh, and, and live in a monogamous relationship, they're going to they're gonna have a problem with that. God, you, you know, you, these guys think that homosexuality is okay. If, you know, we're going to look funny if we call it, you know, tell them it's a sin. They're going to look at it when we tell them that covetousness is a sin, which our entire American uh, economic system is built on covetousness, and we say that that's a sin, people are going to have a problem with us. And there's churches that back off from that. But if you won't call things sins, then there's also no reason for Jesus to shed his blood for our sins, to cover our sins. So then we draw away from God the blood of Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus isn't needed, we say, well, there's got to be other ways to heaven because, you know, we don't have sin as an issue. We don't have the blood being needed. So there really has to be no Jesus. And the church becomes something i don't know what i don't know what most of these churches become if they start throwing away all these things we know that we need to walk by faith this particular verse mentioned four times in the scriptures what was the, the third one you said, uh, galatians 3:11 and then he says if any man draw back or conceal my soul shall have no pleasure in him. You know, if somebody does not accept faith, they will be rejected. God is a good judge. He is not going to uh, decide, well, you know what, you were a really nice person, you generally did good things, so therefore we're going to throw out the law. You know, uh, if a judge did that in, in, a, in any of our courts, they would be looked at to be removed from office. Well, you know, you mostly did good things. You only murdered one person in your entire life. You know, you, you're, but all the other times you were a pretty good person, we're going to let you off. That would not go over well with people. God is a good judge, and he is going to judge people for their disobedience. And not look at all the good things they did, but for their disobedience, he said, they are guilty. And God's standard is perfection. And we've got to keep this in mind. God has a standard that says you must be perfect to enter into heaven. Which is why Jesus had to die for the sins of the world so that we could then take on his righteousness and be, before the Father be perfect. When people stand at the white throne judgment, they're going to stand in their own righteousness, which is filthy rags, and God says, not perfect, you're gone. You know, and this is going to be in this. And he says in the last verse in this, but we are not of them which draw back or hinder, but uh, back into perdition, and perdition is a word for destruction, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. And believing means the con full conviction of something. And this is the key to belief. Am I convicted of what I believe enough to change my life? You know, it is not just, well, I believe that Jesus lived. Well, you know what? 
the devils believed that Jesus lived too. They recognized him. They knew who he was. They're not going to heaven. They're not being lifted out of tradition. There are many people who say, I believe in Jesus. The question is, what do you believe about Jesus? Are you fully convinced that Jesus is the only answer to entering heaven? And I love to use the description, and I learned this when I, when I did a repelling course. You know, I was a pretty big guy, and the rope was pretty skinny. And they're going, you're going to go over the edge, and this rope is the only thing that's going to keep you from falling. Well, the rest of the gear as well, but this little tiny skinny rope. Do we recognize that Jesus is the only way? There is no plan B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever. <laughs> there is only the one plan. If he is not who he says he is, then we're in trouble. Now, the way that he's blessed my life and God has taken care of my life, I know that he is who he says he is. And I know that he is the one that I'm trusting in. And I know that he's kept his word up till now, so I know he will keep his word in the future. And this is the beauty of it. There is no other option. If I keep my eyes that there may be some other option, I have not fully believed in Christ. You know, God, you know, I think if I just do enough good works, it might be okay. Nope, I'm not putting my full trust in Jesus. It is a full trust and confidence in him. Anything less is not what God's looking for. If I'm going, well, Jesus, I'm 80% going to follow you and 10% following something else and 10%, I'm hedging my bets. Nope. We're not putting our full confidence in him. And this is what it's talking about. I don't draw back. I'm not going toward destruction. I am putting all my... I'm putting, in this case, all my eggs in one basket. Jesus, it's you or nothing. And taking him at his word. Not whatever I can do, it's Jesus. And the finished work of Christ that I'm now resting in, which is what this book's whole process has been, learning to rest in the truth of God. And this is faith rest. Where I just say, God, I trust you. Not anything that I can do, not anything that the church can do, not anything that mom and dad can do or anybody else, but God, I trust in you. And I'm going to follow you to a saving because that trust leads to the saving of our soul. And it's the only thing that can save our soul is that finished work of Christ. And next week, we're going to be t starting to talk about examples of faith. I don't know how long it's going to take to get through chapter 11, because we're going to go through in some of these stories and remind people of some of the stories. Some of them we know really well. Some of them we don't know hardly at all. But we're going to be starting that next week. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, teach us to surrender to you to have full trust and confidence in who you are, that you are the only way to heaven. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.